All right, welcome back. So uh, last week we took a little bit of a detour out of the book of Luke, and with the upcoming election, we listened to a lecture from a few years ago from uh, the Bible Project's Tim Mackey on um, uh, the early church and politics. And so I hope that was helpful as you think about uh, how you're going to vote and how you're going to engage with our world as a citizen of um, as a citizen of heaven, as well as a citizen of this world. So anyway, I hope that was helpful. Today, though, we're going to be back in the book of Luke. Um, I'm all drugged up. You guys, I appreciate you praying for me. I'm all drugged up on Advils because um, I threw my back out this week. I've got my back brace on. We're going to see if I can stand through a whole sermon. If all of a sudden the video jumps to me laying flat on the ground or something like that and finishing the sermon, that's because I got tired of standing. So anyway, we'll see if we can get through this all. Um, it's actually just a short couple of verses today. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got some ground to cover. So let me just pray for us uh, before we get started. Lord, we uh, thank you that um, uh, that you are so gracious and merciful, and we thank you that uh, we get to be on your team, like we're going to talk about today, and we thank you that you are um, our leader, and you are the great shepherd um, who leads your people. And so today, I just pray that you would use your word um, uh, to to melt our hearts, Lord, and to speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Um, and so we just invite you here now into all of our living rooms and kitchens and dining rooms, wherever we're watching this. Um, we, we just ask you to be uh, the great shepherd of our church. So we just pray all this uh, in your name. Amen. So when I was in uh, middle school, actually Melissa can um, uh, verify this for sure. I was that really, because we went to middle school together, I was that really annoying kid that thought PE was the Olympics, right? So you know that kid. Every school has one of these kids, right? So every time we had to pick teams in PE, uh, I was probably the more athletic, most athletic kid or one of them in my class, you know? And so um, I was always the kid that was the captain, right? The one who was picking teams. And uh, most of you guys probably would have hated me when I was in junior high. I was so competitive. And all I cared about was winning whatever game, even if it was like hockey, I didn't even really like hockey, but I had to win when we played hockey or soccer, basketball, especially basketball. Um, and so, you know, you guys, a lot of you probably dread those moments, right? If you remember that from PE where some uh, terrible, uh, mean kid like me is standing up there and picking the teams. And I'm going, uh, I was always the kid, though. I always picked. I didn't care. I didn't pick friends. I didn't pick Melissa, right? Because no offense, but Melissa was not going to help me win any sort of a basketball tournament. Even back then, she was like four foot one or whatever, right? And so I was that kid that was just awful. I would pick just to win. Um, and we'd go down the line and I would, in my head, I'd be thinking, okay, I need this guy because he can shoot. I need this guy. He can block shots. This, you know, whatever. That's how I was thinking, completely oblivious to anybody else's feelings. I was always trying uh, to pick the A team. And that's a very um, uh, natural, human thing, you know, way for us to act in our fallen and sinful state to always want the best group around us. Uh, how can these people 
benefit me as the team captain. That's what I was thinking. How can these turkeys help me win? I want to put together the best group that I can. It's sort of the same thing um, that the president does when they when a president first takes office. So if the polls are any indication, looks like Joe Biden might be doing this in a few months. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm no psychic or whatever. But let's say Joe Biden wins in a few weeks. Then he's gonna. The first thing he's gonna start doing is announcing uh, cabinet positions. Um, you know, so Pete Buttigieg is whatever, you know, the secretary of something or other. And what the, the president tries to do is surround himself with the best uh, group of people, right? The best decision makers. And that's very natural, right? Because if you're the leader of a group, you want the best group um, around you. Today, Jesus is going to pick his group. He is standing in the gym and it's time to play soccer or it's time to play hockey or basketball or whatever. He's the president. He's picking his cabinet. Now, let's take a look at first thing we're going to see. This this uh, text is broken up into two parts. The first verse, it tells us what he did before he picked them. And then the next couple verses shows us um, who he picks uh, as his team. So um, let's. this is a very important moment, right? This is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's picking his group of disciples. So let's take a look. We're going to be in uh, Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 6. We're going to just read verses uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 today. So just a couple of verses. So at the beginning, uh, verse 12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. So the first thing that Jesus does is he doesn't um, pick this team on his own, right? He, he goes up to this mountain to pray. Now, the Bible, the, the Gospels talk a lot about Jesus and prayer. And uh, two things always kind of stick out to me when we talk about Jesus praying. And both of these things really bother me. The first thing is, a lot of times I think it says he gets up really early to pray. He prays before it was light outside or he prays while it was still dark out, you know? Okay, I really hate that because I am the opposite. I like to stay up late and sleep in if I can, right? So already, uh, Jesus, I don't like that. Second, he's always going up a mountain to pray, to get away, to be by himself, right? So Jesus gets up really early in the morning and goes for a hike so he can pray. Uh, my two least favorite things in the world, right? Walking up a hill and getting up early in the morning. But this is what Jesus does. He has to spend time with his father. And you you might be asking yourself, wait, isn't Jesus uh, the Messiah? Why doesn't he just, you know, isn't he God himself? Doesn't he just pick this team by himself. No, remember, we've talked about Jesus as the spirit-filled Messiah. He lived his life here on earth, just like any of us, uh, just empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? He set the the divine um, uh, benefits and all that stuff aside so that he could live really like the way that we live. And if you miss some of those sermons, we talked about that early on in Luke. You can go look some of that stuff up. So here he is, and he is um, picking this group uh, he's going to pick this group of disciples. So look at verse 13. So after he prays, he goes, he spends time with the Father. He's really wrestling in prayer and asking for wisdom. And verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Okay, so uh, Jesus was not the only rabbi in the first century Jewish world to have a group of 12 disciples or to have a group of disciples. This was a very common thing. And uh, top students uh, would become disciples of prominent rabbis, like Paul was a disciple of a guy named Gamaliel. And uh, th this was very common. And the difference, though, 
between the way they did discipleship and the way that we do discipleship uh, is this was a whole life situation. You weren't just learning some theological truths, right? Like I went to seminary, I went to Bible college, um, and in both of those things, I had teachers. A lot of them were pretty great, uh, but here's the thing. Most of my interactions with those, with those teachers were, you know, three to five hours a week, right? I'd show up for a couple of classes once or twice, three times a week, whatever it was. Um, I would get some you know, uh, homework, and I would take tests and that sort of stuff. And I would listen to lectures. And most of those teachers I had for one semester, and that was it. And so I would absorb information from these people. And they would give me tests, and I'd write papers and to the purpose of making sure that I absorbed that information. And so in the Western world, teaching is all about information collection, getting information from the teacher's brain into my brain. But in the ancient world, that wasn't necessarily the case. It was about information, but it was also about so much more than that. So when you became a um, disciple of a teacher like Jesus uh, or, you know, any rabbi, you weren't just there to learn information. You were there to watch the teacher. You were there to absorb um, just the way that he lived life. And so you lived with your teacher. You did, uh, you know, rabbi means teacher. So you lived with your teacher. You uh, did anything that the teacher asked you to do. Um, there's a book called um, Walking, is it Walking in the Dust of the Rabbi Jesus? And I think the idea there was that wherever the teacher went, right, the disciples would be walking behind him, uh, you know, getting covered in the teacher's dust. And so this is what Jesus is calling these uh, 12 men to do, to become not just um, students the way that we would think in the Western world, but to really become more like apprentices uh, who live and work and absorb the life of their teacher. And so Jesus at this point is very popular. And he has a lot of people following him around. And from that group, he picks out specifically 12. And it says he calls these 12 the apostles. So we know he also had like the group of, I always forget when I say this, I should look this up someday, 70 or 72, I think it was 70, 72, um, bigger group of disciples. Within that group then, he chose 12 to be kind of his inner circle there of, you know, the 12 disciples as we know. Um, here he calls them apostles. Now, the I remember once asking my Sunday school teacher, um, in uh, school, uh, or I'm um, sorry, in Sunday school when I was in high school, uh, you know, what, what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? And my teacher had no idea, uh, didn't know. Well, since then, I've looked it up and I've, you know, wondered about this. So here's the thing. Uh, a disciple is what we talked about earlier. You know, the person who, who studies with, with the rabbi. Uh, an apostle means one who is sent out. And so when we talk about apostles, uh, in the New Testament, we really have to distinguish between little a and big a apostles, right? There were there were two kinds of apostle. Uh, the first kind um, of apostle, it just means somebody who is sent out on a mission. So like in John 13, where Jesus says that a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. That word in Greek is literally the apostle, the one who is sent out on a mission is not greater than the person who sent him. And so... Um, in one sense, everybody who is a follower of Jesus is an apostle. We're all sent on a mission. But in another sense, there are the specific apostles. There's the office of apostle. And the office of apostle were these 12 guys, and then a few other people got added. Uh, James, Jesus's brother, uh, Paul was added. I think they called Barnabas an apostle at one point. And anyway, the, this group of probably less than 20 guys uh, was the group that um, was the original authoritative leaders of the church. These are the guys who wrote scripture. They did 
you know, they were the ones, and we'll read this verse later, that the whole church was built upon. And once those guys died off, the church did not replace them. There was no um, second person to replace, you know, Peter once, you know, once all that happened, right? They were, they were just this group of guys that got the church going. And then once the church got going, everybody is considered a little a apostle. And just sort of a, a sidebar of application here real fast. One of the things um, that's really problematic in the church is that too many of us want to be disciples, but we don't want to be apostles, right? We want to sit at Jesus's feet and we want to learn and we want to study our scriptures. And uh, we want to hear me talk about Greek and we want to watch Bible project videos and read our devotionals in the morning, but then we don't go out and do what it says. We don't want to be the apostles, right? We don't want to be the ones who are sent out um, on a mission. And so that's just kind of a little, as we're thinking about a little sidebar, right? As we're thinking about these uh, two different kinds of things, uh, different ideas, right? What I'm saying is it's all wrapped in one. If you really are a disciple of Jesus, then you're also going to be an apostle for Jesus, right? If you really are a learner who sits at his feet, you're going to go and you're going to do what he says. And we're going to learn more about this as we come to the sermon on the plane um, in the next few verses, um, you know, in the next few weeks. All right, so Jesus now, he's prayed, he's calling together the 12. Now let's read in these last couple of verses here, let's read the list of the 12 and then we'll talk about them. Uh, So verse 14, so this is the group, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right, so what I want to do now is just talk about each one of these 12 guys. So we'll start here at the beginning with uh, verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter. So Simon Peter, we've already met him a couple of different times uh, in the book of Luke. He is clearly the the alpha of the disciples. In, ev- in the ancient world, the way you ordered people in a list or the way you sat people at a table closest to the head, those sort of things were very important to these folks. And it's no coincidence that in every single one of the list of the disciples, Simon Peter, Peter, his name, shows up uh, first. He is sort of the the leader of the disciples, or he will become the leader of the disciples. So his name is Simon, but Jesus gives him the name Peter, which means the rock, right? He says, on you, on these apostles, like, you know, on the on the gospel. Well, it's kind of a complicated story. But when Jesus says that, he's saying Peter just confessed that uh, Jesus was the Christ. And um, Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And then Jesus says that right there, that I'm the Christ. On that, I will build my church, right? The rock. Your your confession, Peter, is the rock on which I will build my church. And so that's what Peter means. It means the rock, or uh, I was jokingly call him Rocky, right? So what do we know about Peter? Well, we know we've already seen uh, last chapter, he was a, a fisherman and uh, he ran a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we also know that he becomes one of Jesus's inner three. So you've got that group of 72, then you've got the 12. Then within that group, there are three, Peter, James, and John, who become become Jesus's best friends. These are his inner circle, or you could say. Uh, They witness the transfiguration. They see Jesus raise uh, somebody from the dead. There's a couple of things that they're there when he uh, prays um, in Gethsemane. There's a few things that only these guys uh, get to witness. So that's Peter is one of those guys. Um, I already talked about another very important moment is where he does. He confesses Jesus as the Christ. When Jesus says, who do you guys think I am? You know, 
Peter says, well, you, you know, you're the Christ, you're, you're the Messiah. Um, another thing about Peter that we read as you read through the, the Gospels and the book of Acts is he always seems to be very quick to speak, right? So if you read the story of the transfiguration, which we'll get to, um, you know, Jesus, uh, Peter sees um, uh, Moses and Elijah, and he's like, oh, let me build you guys some tents. And, you know, and it even specifically says it in one of the Gospels. You know, he said this because he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, or another time when he very rashly declares, you know, Jesus, I will never deny you. I'll never forsake you. I'll die with you. And then just, uh, you know, we know the next part of the story is that a few moments later, you know, a few hours later, Jesus is arrested and Peter is completely denying to some servants, some slaves, that he even knows Jesus. And so there's that whole story. But then that story has a happy ending because Peter... Um, it confesses to G, you know, he, he feels repentant and Jesus takes him aside, uh, in the book of John and specifically forgives him three different times. Just, you know, and the symbolism there is, uh, very obvious, right? You denied me three times. I'll forgive you now, um, three times. And then as things progress, right, in the New Testament story, Peter, like I said, is the clear leader of the early church. And as we get to Pentecost, uh, he is the one who gives the sermon, right? So the, the spirit is poured out on God's people, the 120 in the upper room. And uh, Peter walks outside and he starts preaching. And at first, everybody thinks all the disciples are drunk or whatever, but he preaches this pretty amazing sermon. Um, in Acts chapter 2, we have sort of the Cliff Notes version of that sermon. Uh, and he talks about um, Jesus as the Messiah to this big group of people who are in Jerusalem, and thousands of people get saved. And uh, it's really a wonderful story. That's how the church gets kicked off. Peter is the first sort of a preacher, you know, in the church. Um, there's some other stories about him in the book of Acts once he was arrested um, and uh, miraculously freed from prison. We'll talk about that in a minute with James. Um, there's another famous story where um, he he's sitting on a rooftop and he's praying and he sees this vision and, you know, these unclean animals come down in this sheet and Jesus tells him, hey, dude, take a bite, you know, eat this stuff. And Peter, no, never, Lord, you know, and this happens a couple of times. And the whole point being that um, Jesus is saying, you're treating people the way that you're treating these animals, like they're unclean. And he's saying, there are people who are not Jewish that I would like to bring into the kingdom. And I want you to be the person that does that. And so, uh, Peter drives, uh, you know, drives, you know, not drives, uh, what's the word, rides out probably on his donkey or whatever, uh, to this this guy Cornelius's house who is a, a Gentile and preaches the gospel. And this is the first kind of big group of Gentiles that come into the kingdom. But Peter uh, seems to have struggled with this idea his whole life because one of the last things we read about Peter um, is... Uh, his his fight with Paul in this in the the region of Galatia. So Paul wrote the book of Galatians, and in that book he talks about one time there were all these Jewish folk, or sorry, there were all these Gentile folks, and Peter was uh, in this region, and they were all hanging out, and Peter would eat dinner with them. And then when the Jewish folks showed up, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles because he didn't want to look guilty or whatever. And so Paul takes him up in front of everybody in the church and calls him out. Uh, and it seems like he repents or whatever. You know, Paul is just kind of saying, even Peter in this instance, uh, in, in this instance was wrong. And so, you know, he, he was the leader of the early church, but he was by no means perfect, right? He had f a chronic case of foot and mouth disease. He seemed to struggle with uh, some of this Gentiles uh, becoming believers stuff for all of his life. Uh, we know he wrote the book of uh, 1 Peter and the book of 2 Peter, which were encouraging books to uh, churches in persecution. 
which brings us now kind of, uh, you know, if you want to go read those, I really encourage that, uh, brings us to sort of the post-New Testament stuff. So what happened to Peter after the New Testament, you know, that is not talked about in the New Testament? Well, uh, we know some of this from church history, right? So there was an emperor, his name was Nero, and he was a real turkey. Actually, at first he was a pretty good emperor, and then he seemed to go crazy. Uh, And when he went crazy, at one point, there was a huge fire in Rome. And a lot of historians think that Nero probably started the fire to burn a big section in the middle of the city so that he could build some stuff that he wanted to build, but he couldn't because there were people living there. And so Nero needed a scapegoat for this fire because everybody, you know, you've probably heard that, what is it, uh, Nero playing the fiddle while Rome burns, right? Like he didn't even care. And so Nero needed a scapegoat for this fire. And so what he did was he blamed the followers of Jesus uh, in the city of Rome. And he turned the entire city against these Christians. And the the persecution that happened after that was one of the first absolutely brutal waves of widespread persecution. You know, all over the Roman, uh, the area around Rome, these Christians were brutally murdered. And, um, you know, some of them were, um, I remember reading something about uh, they were lit like candles, you know, as you would walk around the streets. Um, uh, to light up the streets, right? They were lit on fire. Uh, the big thing that happened is a ton of them were fed to the beasts. Um, not, the Colosseum wasn't built yet, but they did have arenas, right? And so they were they were fed to the beasts in the arenas at the, the games. Um, you know, Nero's persecution was absolutely brutal. And some of this is actually... Uh, and I just watched that movie a few weeks ago. Um, I think it was just called Paul the Apostle. It had that Jim Caviezel guy who played Jesus in that Mel Gibson movie. There he was playing um, Luke, uh, who wrote, you know, Luke and Acts. Um, anyway, that, that whole movie takes place during this persecution, right, where Luke is writing some of this stuff down. Anyway, so this persecution was absolutely brutal. And uh, it was during this persecution that most scholars believe Paul was uh, arrested in Rome, and he was taken just outside the city walls, um, and he was beheaded uh, because he was a Roman citizen, he was given the more merciful death. Peter was not a Roman citizen. And so at the same time that Paul was arrested, Peter was arrested. And church tradition says that Peter was crucified on the same day as Paul, uh, except that he was crucified upside down. So while Jesus was crucified right side up, he was crucified upside down. Um, and church tradition says, and we don't know how true this is, that that happened right where, um, right underneath St. Peter's Basilica, where the Roman Catholic Church has its headquarters at the Vatican, right? So way down there is his tomb somewhere. And there's an obelisk, I think it is, in the, the courtyard of the of St. Peter's, um, where they said that that, that obelisk um, cast a shadow. I remember watching a whole documentary about that obelisk once. That's how boring I am, right? This is the kind of stuff I do um, on History Channel or something. But anyway, so that's what happened to Peter, right? He preached the gospel. He traveled around. He wrote the book of Peter. Uh, and then while he was in Rome pastoring to the church there, uh, he was executed and he was crucified upside down. So that's the first disciple. That's the one we probably know the most about or one of the ones that we know the most about. The second disciple in this list is Andrew. Uh, We're told that he is Simon Peter's little brother. So he was also a part of this fishing business that they all walked away from to follow Jesus and to become his disciples, right? To walk around um, and catch the dust from his feet. Um, He's called at the same time as Peter, James, and John. If you remember the miracle catch of fish uh, from last chapter, um, Andrew was a part of that group. Uh, we also know that Andrew started out as a disciple of John the Baptist. Um, 
and then became a disciple of Jesus. So he seems to be a pretty religious guy. So he's very interested in the things of God, right? So he's following these two great rabbis. Um, we know another story about him is that uh, we'll read the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Andrew is the one, we're told in one of the Gospels, that he's the one who actually had the guts to walk up to Jesus and say, look, I know there's 5,000 people here. Uh, all we have, though, is five loaves and two fish. What can you do with this, right? And so he's the one who brought that stuff to Jesus. Um, and then after the list of disciples and uh, in Acts chapter one, so you know Simon Peter, uh, sorry Andrew was there for the resurrection and all that stuff. And after Acts chapter one, though, where the list is read out, he's not really mentioned ever again in the New Testament. So he doesn't have this detailed history like uh, Peter or John or some of these others. After the New Testament, though, uh, we know well. So some of this stuff I'm telling you will be from church tradition. So all this stuff after the New Testament, we don't know for sure, but this is kind of what the church has always believed in what church history says. And so church history places him in an area called uh, Scythia, which is north um, and a little bit kind of like northeast of the Black Sea. Um, maybe I'll put maps up for a lot of this stuff. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, he ended up in Achaia, where he was crucified on an X-shaped cross. So uh, Jesus's cross and Simon Peter's cross, they were probably shaped more like an uppercase T, not like a lowercase T. Not like this, but kind of like this, right? Uh, Simon Peter, uh, sorry, <laughs> I keep saying Simon Peter. Andrew's cross, though, was shaped like an X. And that's actually where that comes from. Now, if, you know, they call an X cross like that, they call it St. Andrew's cross. So um, he preached the gospel in a few different areas, moved around, and then just like his brother and just like his Lord, he was um, crucified, crucified in a brutal death. So we have uh, Peter, we have Andrew, next we have James. Now, when you read the New Testament, there's a million guys named James. James this and James that and the son of James. Now, this isn't James, uh, Jesus's brother, Who's the James who wrote the book of James? Uh, this guy is a different James. This is James, the brother of John the Apostle. So Peter, James, and John. This James was part of that inner, that group of three who were at the Transfiguration and Gethsemane and saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead when nobody else did, all that sort of stuff. So he was part of that inner group of, uh, of three. Um, an interesting story about James and John is Jesus gave them the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. And there's a story where... They're in a Samaritan village, and the Samaritans refuse to help Jesus. And James and John go to Jesus and say, hey, should we call down fire from heaven on these Samaritans? And uh, that's, I think, when pe most people believe Jesus gave them the nickname, the sarcastic nickname, the Sons of Thunder, right? Should we? Because, uh, you know, this, is, this was their first reaction, right? Can we do this? Um, not much is known about James' uh, after the resurrection, except for we know about his death from the book of Acts. So he was arrested um, in Acts chapter 12, and he was executed, it says, by the sword. And that was in 44 AD in, uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem. Uh, and here's the gut-wrenching part about this, though. <clears throat> First, they executed and killed James. And then... Um, uh, it says that uh, everybody liked it so much that I think it was Herod then had Simon Peter arrested intending to do the same thing. And then that night an angel broke, uh, you know, broke into the jail and uh, set Peter free. And it's that whole thing where Peter was kind of in a trance and he gets out of the jail and then he wakes up in the middle of the street and he runs back to where all the Christians are hiding. And he knocks on the door and the girl who answers the door, hey, it's Simon Peter, runs back but forgets to open the door for him. I love that little detail. And uh, Peter is freed, but we're never told anything about why James was executed and uh, Peter was saved. 
right? Surely God had the power to save James, uh, but he didn't. And we, we know he had the power because the very next day he saves Peter. And so it's sort of this open-ended question, right? Why God in his absolute perfect sovereignty did he allow James to be executed, but not Peter? And we're not told, but I'll guarantee you this, that after being a witness to the resurrection and seeing the Lord and really following him, James was okay with it, right? He was, he's probably in heaven right now bragging that he was the first one that got to see Jesus's face again out of uh, this, you know, out of this group of apostles. So that's James. So we have, we have, um, we have Andrew, sorry, we have Peter, Andrew, uh, we have James, and now the fourth one, we have John. So the last one of the inner circle. Now, most scholars agree or think, you know, that, um, uh, John was probably the youngest disciple, maybe even at this point, a teenager. And they think that because he lived so long. He lived into the 90s, I think, AD. So he was the last, we'll talk about this in a minute, he was the last apostle to die. And so he was probably the youngest one, and Peter was probably the oldest. Um, a, a lot of scholars also think that he may have been uh, uh, some sort of a relative of Jesus, like a cousin or somebody distantly, you know, a part of a clan that Jesus was a part of, um, him and James. And we know he wrote a lot of the New Testament. So he wrote the book of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we read with our core team last year. Uh, and he wrote the book of Revelation, my favorite book of the Bible. And in the, the Gospel of John, though, um, John constantly refers to himself, and I love this, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And a lot of people say, well, why did he, why does he say that? And the answer is not because he thought he was better than the other disciples. Jesus loves me, but not those guys. And the answer is something probably more like, um, John couldn't believe that Jesus loved him. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves, right? The creator God loves me. And he was blown away by it. So he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know he was the only disciple to be a witness to the crucifixion. So they all saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, but at the actual crucifixion, everybody else scattered but John. He seemed to have some sort of family connections to the high priest's household, and so he was able to get in and watch the trial and watch the crucifixion. And from the cross, Jesus actually says to to John, hey, when I'm gone, take care of my mom, right? And um, tradition says that Mary, after... Uh, the resurrection and the ascension and all that. She lived with John and she traveled with him and eventually ended up in Ephesus. Um, I also love the way that the the gospel writers sort of portray that there was some sort of a rivalry between Peter and John. Um, it like is human nature. Peter was probably the oldest disciple. John was probably the youngest disciple. And so I can imagine him making metamucil jokes and cracking, you know, making fun of Peter and Peter making fun of John for not having to shave yet and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, um, there's uh, actually this one story, which is my favorite story in the entire Bible, that after um, uh, the, the crucifixion, the women go back and they tell the disciples, you know, hey, Jesus has risen from the dead. And Peter and John race to the tomb. And John, because this is his, uh, um, his gospel that he wrote in the Gospel of John, he specifically makes the point that he beat Peter to the tomb. And I love that because that means even the Bible says that guys named John are super athletic and fast. 
Um, and that's the point of our whole sermon. All right, amen, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so they seem to have this rivalry between the two, but that rivalry also led to them being partners. And when we open up the book of Acts, they seem to be the two leaders of the early church. So I said Peter was kind of the alpha, right? The main leader of the early church, but John seems to be right there with him a lot of the time. And one of my favorite stories is when Peter and John are arrested early in the book of Acts, and they're standing before the Sanhedrin. And in the same place where Jesus stood and was condemned, and Peter and John stand there, and the Sanhedrin basically tells them, guys, you need to, we're, we're commanding you to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And it says that they responded, and they said, Peter and John stood there, and they said, look, you're telling us not to talk about Jesus. God Almighty is telling us to tell everybody about Jesus. So who do you think we're going to listen to? Like, that's a pretty gutsy move. And then they walk out, um, you know, and uh, are, are set free because uh, they had just healed a guy in the temple. And so uh, Peter and John seem to, especially in the early church, have this this rivalry, but also this this friendly rivalry, but also this partnership. Um, and uh, John, so after the New Testament ends, John, seen, or, you know, after the book of Acts ends, I guess we could say, John ends up as sort of a bishop in uh, the area of Ephesus over a handful of churches. And we talked about that with, um, at the old English service where we read the beginning, the uh, chapters two and three of Revelation, where we covered uh, his letters, Jesus's letters to the early churches around the area of um, Ephesus and there in um, Western Turkey. And so John ended up there um, at some point, he was arrested. He's the only of the disciples that was not uh, martyred, was not executed, but it wasn't for lack of trying. So church tradition says that he was um, put into a, a big pot of boiling oil, but that he survived that. Um, and after that didn't kill him, the Romans got upset. And so they exiled him uh, to a labor camp on the island of Patmos, um, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Um, and then he died probably either of you know, something with the boiling oil or tradition says he died of old age, but he, he died, um, uh, he died way later, uh, than the rest of the apostles. He died probably in the mid to late nineties AD. And so if Jesus and all this stuff that we're reading about in the book of Luke happened in the mid thirties, uh, he lived another 60 ish years, uh, after the close of the, um, after the close of, uh, of the Gospels and another 30 years after the close of the book of Acts. And there's a lot of extra biblical stories about John, some I didn't get into about. I mean, there was one where he, um, he, he had a disciple who kind of strayed and joined this group of like robbers, pirates, you know, rob um, highways and that sort of stuff. And John just totally brazenly walked up and walked into a cave and grabbed this kid from these guys. <laughs> you know, there's stuff like that. We don't know how much of that stuff is true, um, but he seems to have lived a pretty amazing life until he died uh, as a very old man after writing the book of Revelation. Um, so he's my favorite author of the Bible, probably because he wrote my favorite book, the book of Revelation, the book of hope. All right, so we have John, so we have uh, Peter, uh, we have Andrew, James, and John. Next, we have Philip. So um, in the New Testament, he doesn't show up a ton. In the book of John, though, there is this great story uh, that I'd like to read to you from. Uh, this is John, let me flip over here, John one forty-three. Let's see, John is after Luke. I always think John should be the first... I mean, I don't know who picked the order of the books of the New Testament, but I always think John should be the first... Um, book of the New Testament, that'd be way better, right? Opening up with the whole in the beginning uh, was the word and all that stuff. And then Luke would flow straight into the book of Acts. But you know, hey, nobody asked me. So anyway, uh, here we are, John 1, let me flip over, 43, 
I'm going to read 43 through 45. So there's this story here about Philip. And then we'll read, we're actually going to read the rest of the story in a sec. Um, so the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses uh, in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so uh, Philip here is... Um, Sorry, let me fix my notes. Philip here is one of the early, uh, earliest disciples um, at the very beginning. He's also one of the first evangelists. He's the first person that we see goes and finds somebody else and says, hey, this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah. That's a pretty cool, right? He is the first evangelist in the New Testament. Um, and then after this, it doesn't really say a ton about him. Um, after the New Testament is over, though, post-New Testament, church tradition, what does it say about him? Um, the story goes that he was tortured and then crucified in Hierapolis, which is a region in Turkey, um, and that while he was hanging from the cross, uh, he preached to the crowds as the onlookers, uh, the crowds and onlookers, right, as he died. And so even while he was being tortured, he did what we'll, we'll read in a, few, um, in a few weeks here, where Jesus talks about loving your enemies. This is exactly what he did. Um, and so that's, you know, we don't know a ton about him, but that's what we do know. The next guy we have in the list is Bartholomew. Um, most scholars agree that, and church tradition says that Bartholomew had another name, just like a lot of people had multiple names in the old, uh, you know, in the ancient world, like Paul, you know, Paul, Saul, Peter, um, Simon, Matthew, Levi, right? So this guy was also Nathaniel from the book of John. So let me read to you uh, the rest of that story, right? So Philip goes, he gets Nathaniel, and then verse 46, I'll read 45 again. Philip found Nathaniel, and he said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this is what Nathaniel says. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. All right, so here's what happens. So Philip goes, he finds Nathaniel, and uh, he says to him, dude, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And just like a stuck-up city boy, just like me, right? Somebody came to me and said, hey, we found the Messiah. He's from Modesto or whatever. <laughs> Can anything good come from Modesto? That was exactly um, his attitude here. But then look what happens. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So Jesus goes up to him and says, you know, this guy right here, this is a real, real good dude. This is a religious dude right here. And he's like, how do you know me? And he says, I saw you under the fig tree. Oh my goodness, this guy is the Messiah, the King. So the question is, what happened? And the answer is, we have no idea. Something happened in his life uh, that put him under, that happened while he was under a fig tree. Uh, you know, we don't know what it was. 
he could have been praying and said, God, prove yourself to me, or God, I dedicate my life to you. Something that happened while he was resting and sitting underneath a fig tree. And whatever it was, Jesus knew about that. And it's something that only God would have known. And so this is his story. This is how he was blown away. It's how he joined the ranks. Um, after the New Testament church tradition, some say that um, he took the gospel of Matthew uh, and ended up in India for a while. And he was one of the first uh, to take the gospel over that way. Um, another tradition says that uh, he was whipped to death, so flogged to death um, in uh, what's Armenia, in the land of Armenia, which is between the Caspian, it's a little straight kind of between the Caspian and the Black Sea, uh, northeast of Israel, where actually if you've been reading the news, there's a war happening there right now and a lot of stuff going on, but um, that's the area that he died. All right, so that was the sixth one. Seventh, we have Matthew and Levi, you know, Matthew or Levi is his other name, sorry. And we read about him a few weeks ago. He was a tax collector um, who was basically a traitor to his people working for the Romans. Um, I'm not going to get into the whole tax collector thing again. If you want to read about that, or you know, if you want to find out more about that, go find the message um, from Matthew. I'm sorry, from Luke. You know, was it last chapter where we talked about Matthew? Um, outside of the New Testament, we don't know a lot about him. But church tradition says that he was executed by being run through with a sword. Um, in Ethiopia. So he took the gospel and headed down into uh, past Egypt and past uh, sort of Western, you know, like uh, Northern Africa and down into the deeper part of Africa where um, he was eventually executed. And there's churches in Africa now that trace themselves back to Matthew. Uh, ninth, we have Thomas. Now, Thomas, it says here, he's called the twin, but it doesn't appear that he had a twin as one of the disciples. Um, I love this. I don't know if this is true, but I really want this to be true, that one of the later traditions says that he was called the twin because he kind of looked like Jesus. And so the nickname wasn't, oh, this guy has a twin brother, but this nickname was a sarcastic, he looks like Jesus kind of a nickname. Um yeah, so we know a little bit about Thomas, right? At the end of the Lazarus story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, uh, Thomas, it says in John 11, uh, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, talking about Jesus. So he was a very, um, he seemed to be a very bold uh, kind of guy. Um, but, you know, that was before Jesus was arrested. But then after Jesus was arrested, he fled with the rest of the disciples, um, all of them, except uh, John, the, you know, John the disciple. Um, and he took off. And then I want to read this story now. I'm going to jump over a few chapters to John chapter 20. And uh, I want to read this to you. So this is uh, 20, 24 through 29. This is what Thomas, and it's a bummer, but this is what he's really known for. Uh, now Thomas, who was one of the twelve, this is after the resurrection, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus showed up to the other ten who were still there. Judas was already dead at this point. Uh, Jesus shows up to these guys. Thomas was out getting Starbucks or whatever. He comes back with the coffee, and the other disciples said to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails... And I place my finger in the mark, uh, sorry, unless I see his hands, uh, see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Okay, so they said, we saw Jesus, we saw Jesus. Thomas is done. Nope, I'm not, I'm not believing this right now. I, I don't, I can't unless I see it for myself. Now, this is the craziest part of the story. This next phrase, eight days later, eight days went by. These guys were trying to convince Thomas, Thomas, we really did see Jesus. Nope, not unless I touch him. 
eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time, right? Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. He, he touched his hands. And put, uh, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen uh, and yet have believed. So this is why we call him Doubting Thomas, because for those eight days, that's what he did. He was Doubting Thomas. But from what church tradition tells us is he was not Doubting Thomas for very long. After those eight days, Jesus showed up, and I love the graciousness of that story. There's no, how dare you not believe in me? Don't you remember? I told you guys that this is what was going to happen. Right? There was none of that. All there was, was was grace. Touch my hands, right? Touch my side. And then church tradition tells us that afterwards, um, well, we know he didn't write the Gospel of Thomas. You may have heard of that, right? The Gospel of Thomas. Um, that was years, years and years later. Uh, it's an apocryphal. We're not going to get into that. But if you ever see that, he didn't have anything to do with that. Um, church tradition tells us that he also went to India. Uh, and one tradition tells us that he preached the gospel boldly, and then some people got pretty upset with him, and they put him alive, uh, alive into an oven, like a big giant oven, and they baked him alive. Uh, another tradition says that he was uh, run through with a spear, and um, then he was speared alive. So we don't know which one of those is true, but the, the idea that he went to India probably is true, and then he was martyred somewhere over there. So he went from doubting to dying for Jesus, and it's really, you know, I mean, his life is probably a wonderful story, and I can't wait to get to heaven. We're going to get more of those details from him. All right, next in the list, 10th, we have Simon, who's called the Zealot. So we've already, when we were talking about Matthew, uh, Levi, right, the tax collector, we talked about zealots. Um, these are the guys who hated the Romans and they would sneak like think they would do. They were like basically Jewish terrorists against the Romans. They would sneak into crowds of Romans and have these little knives and, you know, shank the uh, Roman soldiers and then slip away through the crowd. Um, these are the guys who would eventually start the war with Rome. The revolt that led the Jewish revolt that led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple uh, by Titus in 70 AD. And so these guys were violent, you know, um, terrorists, basically. And I love the idea of just thinking about what were those dinners like sitting around the campfire with Matthew, the Roman collaborator, and uh, Simon the Zealot, right? Imagine a French resistance fighter and a Nazi collaborator having dinner around a fire. Uh, I bet things were pretty dicey at first, right? Um, so what happened to him, Simon, after the New Testament closes. Uh, tradition tells us that he took the gospel to Persia, modern-day Iran, um, and was either crucified or killed with a sword. So just like all the other disciples, he um, was martyred, all but John was martyred um, for preaching the gospel. The 11th disciple is the guy with the unfortunate name. He's the other Judas. Um, in the New Testament, all we know about this guy is he's in the lists of disciples. Um, he's also called Thaddeus in one of the other lists. Um, after the New Testament, uh, tradition says that he was he went with Simon the Zealot to Persia and that they were killed together, that they were killed at the same time. And we don't know if that's true exactly, but, you know, that's what tradition says, and that's all we know about him. Um, the last name is Judas Iscariot, and we all know about Judas. He's the one who became a traitor. That's what Luke tells us. Um, Iscariot is probably uh, some, you know, has something to do with where he was from. He was always referred to in these lists as the traitor, right? He's always the one who betrays Jesus. Um, there's another story about him too, though, that when um, Mary 
was um, anointing Jesus by pouring perfume out and wiped his hair with her feet. Uh, Judas was really upset because the perfume was so expensive. And in John 12, it says this, I'll read this to you. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, um, he who was about to betray him, it always says he's a, he was the traitor. Uh, he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Which is, was a lot of money. Hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we know two things about uh, Judas. He was a traitor and he was the thief. Um, We know the story of uh, his his betrayal. It's the famous story where he sold uh, Jesus away for 30 pieces of silver. John 6 says this, and Jesus answered them, describing him, did I not choose you the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12 was going to betray him, right? Jesus specifically calls him a devil. Um, Lately, I've heard a lot of people trying to soften Judas's guilt, making him sort of a victim of circumstance. But here's the hard truth. This is what we read about in the New Testament. Jesus calls him a devil. John says that at one point he was possessed by the devil. He betrays Jesus for money. When he finds out about it, he feels bad, but instead of repenting, he kills himself. There's not one positive word, not one positive word said about him in the entire New Testament. What he did was pure evil, right? Plain and simple. He spent three and a half years with Jesus. Like I said, these were not just learners. They were disciples. And he saw him, uh, you know, heal. He heard him teach. Uh, He saw him raise people from the dead. He got to ask him questions about the campfire. He walked with him. He loved him. He knew him. And he got to see Jesus' heart and how he loved people. And when the rubber hit the road, he betrayed him for money. Now, Peter denied Jesus, but as soon as he heard the news of the resurrection, right, he ran to the tomb. He loved Jesus, not Judas. There's none of that with Judas, right? He bought a field, he hung himself, and that was the end of his story. Um, At one point, Jesus even says, he's the one I lost, right? Um, So Judas was the disciple who was not redeemed, the disciple who was not saved. So anyway, that's our list, right? That's our 12, right? Eventually, Judas would be replaced by Matthias, who was eventually... Uh, church tradition tells us was eventually beheaded, right? But this is the group, right? These 11 plus Matthias, this is the group. Uh, Now, do you see what's missing from this group? As you're looking at this list, there's nobody here that's important. There's no religious leaders. There's no Bible scholars. There's no rich guys. Uh, This is not the A team. This is fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, a traitor, some dude that may or may not have kind of looked like Jesus, Um, maybe the, you know, Saddam Hussein used to have the body double, right? Maybe that was, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, anybody who's a student though of the old Testament would look at this list and go, yeah, that's what God does, right? Let me, let me tell you two stories. Let me give you two examples, right? There's, you can go read these stories later on. We don't have time to read them all right now, but go read in Judges 6 and 7, the story of Gideon. And basically what happened is the Midianites are oppressing the people of God and, um, and, uh, God says to Gideon, hey, I want you to get this army together. So he gets this army together. And God says, no, that's too many people. And uh, so I want you to have them go and drink. And depending on how they drink the water, if they drink it this way, they have to leave. If they drink it this other way, they can be part of the army. And he whittles down this army from thousands to 300 guys. And this, guy, this group of 300 guys defeats the Midianites and saves the day. And there's even a part there in Judges where uh, God says to Gideon, I'm doing this so that when it's all over, nobody will look at you guys and say they won that battle. Right? If you had a big army and you win, that's what will happen. But with 300 guys defeating this vast Midianite army, uh, everybody, <clears throat> every, that verse is, I think, seven, 
uh, chapter, I think it's uh, verse 2 of chapter 7, um, where God says that. This is the key uh, to this whole thing. The other version of this is just a few years later with the story of David. So, um, we know the story of Saul becomes the king, and then he's rejected by God. He's the king the people wanted. Well, then God tells Samuel, the prophet, hey, go, and uh, this guy, Jesse, has a bunch of kids. I need you to go. And uh, one of his kids is going to be the next king. So Jesse lines up all the kids like a beauty, or sorry, Samuel lines up all the kids like a beauty contest. And he looks at the first one. Oh, this has got to be the guy, right? Big and strong, muscular. This guy looks like he could win some battles. God says, nah, not that guy. And they go down the line. He's like, no, none of these are the guy. Do you have any other kids? Well, yeah, there's the little runt, but he's out taking care of the sheep. And that's the guy that God chose to use, right? David, that's the guy that God chooses, right? He, he chooses the little guy. He gets rid of the big army and he uses the little army. He gets rid of the big, powerful looking king, kingly kind of guy. And he, he takes the runt. He takes David. And the, the principle here, we see this in 1 Corinthians 1, where it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. That's the pattern, right? God, that's the pattern. God's pattern is clear. He uses regular people. He takes sinful and broken people. He takes the spiritually uh, dead and he brings them back to life. He saves them. Then he equips them. He empowers them with his Holy Spirit and he sends them out with the gospel. And he does this like Gideon so that he will get the glory, so that he will get the credit, um, I'll tell you another story about my uh, terrible um, attitude as an athlete when I was younger. Um, I had a teacher who was early 20s. He was just out of college when I was a senior, so I was 18 at the time. And um, he was a real punk, uh, well, just like me. He was really competitive, just like I was. And so he organized this um, like intramural basketball league, three-on-three basketball league. And uh, he put the teams together. And so he gave himself, because he really wanted to win, he organized it so that he was on a team with the two tallest seniors in our school who were also on the basketball team. And then he gave me on my team, because he put the whole thing together, he gave me on my team two freshmen who were not taller than like five, two, or three. And I'm only five, nine, right? So it was me and these two little children, basically, against a grown man and then two other grown men. And... um so the league, and you know, we got about halfway through the tournament where I had to play his team, um, and I was pretty good at basketball. And so I did to him what I always do to Daniel every time we play basketball is, uh, you know, I mopped the floor with him, and I embarrassed him in front of everybody. And my little team, uh, we beat those guys, and we didn't just beat them by a little. We stomped them because I was pretty mad about the way this guy cheated. Well, anyway, after that, he canceled the league, and... Um, uh, we, we'd never even finished the season after his team lost. He was such a sore loser. Uh, he, he stopped the whole league. The point was the way that those teams were stacked. Nobody, nobody looked at our team's victory and said, those two freshmen that were on my team, those guys won the game. Everybody knew it was me that had won the game. And that's what God does. He purposely puts himself on a team with two little freshmen so that when people look at that, they go, wow, look at, look at it. Look who it is who actually won that game. This is what happens at Pentecost, right? 
It's a game changer. It's God empowering people with his spirit so that he can get all the credit. And when that happened at Pentecost and God just decided to use all these regular people, uh, Peter and James and John and these guys, uh, the gospel exploded all over the world. Look at these areas that I listed, right? We have Africa, Asia, some uh, Paul went into Europe. Um, we have India, Persia, Right, all over the ancient world right there in that little cluster, the gospel spread because God used just regular people. These were regular guys empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, that They were empowered to the point that they were all willing to suffer and die for the gospel. Um, and that's the sermon right there, that without the Holy Spirit, uh, the greatest um, people in the world, the most talented people uh, in the entire world won't have any sort of a kingdom impact. But with the Holy Spirit, regular Joes can do amazing things because Jesus uses them for his purpose. And let me tell you why this is great news for the porch. Uh, Ephesians 2.20, I told you before I'm studying Ephesians right now, I love Ephesians. It says that that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So these apostles, these regular guys are like the bottom stones of the church that we're a part of. We're built on top of these guys, but they were also just a bunch of regular dudes. And we, the church, we're built on their work, and we're not supposed to be better than them. We're supposed to continue their work of announcing the good news of the gospel to the world around us. And this is good news for us because we're super regular people, right? What's so special about the porch? Nothing. Not much, right? Are we bigger than other churches? Not even close. Are we cool? Are we hip? Nah, not really. Do we have more money? Definitely not. Am I smarter than all the other pastors? No. I mean, I'm so broken, I can hardly stand up for an entire sermon. That's the guy we have as our pastor, right? Am I a dynamic, young personality that draws everybody? No, that's not me. That's not my personality. So what do we have going for us? Why will our church make any kind of a kingdom impact? What good can we do? Well, this is what we have going for us. We're regular people. And God's pattern is that he uses regular people. We're normal. We're fishermen. We're tax collectors. Uh, we're zealots about the giants, right? We we don't have the world's best pastor. We don't have the most uh, dynamic group. We don't have the biggest group. We don't have the most money. But God's pattern is that this is exactly the type of people that he uses for his purpose. And so because we're called to be regular people, we need to think about what do regular people do in the kingdom of God? Right? We love our neighbors, we serve our city, we share the gospel with the people in our lives and the people around us, so that when people meet Jesus, uh, uh, and, and good things happen, and people are baptized, and people are surrendering their lives to him as the Lord, nobody's going to look at us and say, whoa, look at what the porch did. They're so amazing. It's going to be very obvious that when all this ends, that it was God who gets the glory. It was It's him who should get the praise. It's him who should get the credit. And that's our application. Not very many pastors will stand up here and say what I'm about to say, but here it is. You're not special, right? We're not special, but our God is our God is amazing, and he has chosen you. He's chosen us, and we're here in San Francisco for a reason. So the, the thing to take away from this list of disciples is go and live a missional life, love your neighbors, study his word, and let his spirit fill you. And then whenever something good happens in the kingdom around you, give him the credit and just go on and do something else. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we pray for that more than anything, that you would work in your kingdom around us and through us. We pray for our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our family. And we just ask, Lord, that 
you would give us the words to say and the the ability to love them the way that you do. And as we move into the next section of teaching on the sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Plain, um, we ask that you would help us to have that kind of fruit in our lives so that nobody would look at us and say, you guys are amazing, but so that people would look right behind us and see you and say that God is amazing. We love you so much. We thank you that your pattern is that you use regular people. Amen. Amen.